Hey guys, before we get going tonight, I want to take a quick minute to talk to you guys about voting. And I'll probably add this on to every podcast between now and the beginning of November as my guess. As I'm sure most people are aware, we are at a critical point in our nation's history, and this is probably the most important election of our lifetimes, or certainly of my lifetime. And I, I just, you know, without getting too political, I want to make sure that everyone is ready to make their voice heard. What that means in preparation for election day coming up is that you have a plan to vote. Uh, and so I just wanted to make sure that everyone out there knows how you're going to vote, knows where your polling place is, and has a plan for either voting remotely or voting in person. It is a critical thing that we do to participate in our democracy at any point, really, but especially at this point in our history. If you're not sure if you're registered, if you're not sure where you're voting, if you're not sure about you know some of the da- down-ballot issues or candidates that are in your state and local elections, you can go to BallotReady.org, B-A-L-L-O-T-R-E-A-D-Y.org, and it will take you through your polling places and, and making sure that you are registered, making sure that you can request an absentee ballot, find out if you can vote early, which you can in a lot of different places, and that'll eliminate a lot of the pressure on the election workers during uh, election day itself and maybe decrease some of the lines and decrease some of the risk of uh, spread during the this uh, pandemic election. So please make a plan, do your research, make sure that you uh, know where and when you're voting and how you're voting and uh, and, and ex- exercise your rights. Because if, if we don't do that, then we really don't have any right to complain about uh, what's been going on. So just my little PSA for now. And uh, let's get into the show. Hello and welcome to The Pain Cave. My name is Jay Friedman. I am your host in The Pain Cave and I am very excited to be joined today by a legendary rock journalist and a bit of a legendary trail and ultra runner up here in the uh, northern part of the Hudson Valley. Tony Fletcher is here in The Pain Cave. Tony, welcome. Welcome and thanks for that absolutely flattering introduction. The second part of it is so untrue, but I will take it. That's not untrue. You've uh, in the past several years, you've established yourself as a, I would say an age group force, uh, both on the roads and the trails locally. Um, and we'll yeah, definitely. I mean, I do, I I do try, but I have I have never ever ever been called a legendary runner before. I've been <laughs> I've been called a few things to my face, but that... never never a legendary runner. <laughs> That's okay. We call Phil legendary also, and he doesn't deserve it. So don't worry about it. <laughs> he does. I just saw the time he put in at the uh, the cat sale this past weekend. He deserves it. I'm I'm happy. I'm happy to be on the show. I listen to it, and it's great. It's it's an honor to be on the show. Thank you. To talk about running. Thank you. Yes, we'll definitely get into running. Um, we're we're doing as you're probably aware, and some of the audience may be aware. We're talking a bunch recently with people who are, uh, you know runners but are well known for pursuits other than running and and maybe don't get to talk about their running as often as they they would like or as often as we'd like to hear so um as somebody who is um a very well known and well respected journalist and uh an author um people may not be aware of the the importance that running plays in your life and i think that's one of the the goals of this kind of episode is that um you know we open up that door to the other side of people's uh you know non-public persona a little bit and you know, find out what makes us tick and how we're all a little bit similar, even despite the fact that we've got very different uh, experiences. So, right. uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this. I love talking with um, journalists and I love talking with people who have backgrounds in music because, um, you know, it's a world that I was always fascinated by and never was able to kind of gain the kind of entry into that uh, that I would like. Um, I know uh, you and, and Jimmy Buff are, uh, are friends and colleagues and also running partners out on the trails. And I spoke, I've spoken with him about the music industry on, on numerous occasions. I'm always fascinated to hear the story, so I can't wait to get into this. Tell us a little bit about how you did get into music journalism, rock journalism, and criticism and that sort of thing, because it started in England, but at a very young age, right? It did start at a young age, and I always put that down to the age that I was living in more than my own age. Um, you know, I, I grew up in London, it, it to me it's more coincidental i think it speaks to my later life writing books that my dad was a music professor my mother was a um 
a music uh, it was actually an English teacher who also was uh, was was a musician. So you could say, okay, if you look at that, and my dad wrote a couple of books, and you could say, oh, well, it was obvious he would he would write books about music. That's not how I thought about things. I was raised playing classical music in a family like that. I loved pop music from the first time I watched Top of the Pops. Uh, I still remember David Bowie performing Starman on Top of the Pops. One of these like <laughs> moments when you know like half the country but pretty much every day under the age of 25 watch the same tv show and right so uh certain moments could be like cultural linchpins they could literally shift the popular culture in the, in the space of three minutes we don't have that um, anymore we don't have that anymore not that kind of communal those kind of communal moments but really what what what, what really happened i i got into rock music i was precocious i would hang with kids like about three years older than me when punk happened um I was at secondary school, sort of junior high in um, in relatively central London, and all of the people my age went home in the spring of 77, like feeling one way and came back in September, just being, did you watch TV over the summer? Did you, I mean, some of us have been in contact, but this thing had happened, you know, with the Sex Pistols, with God Save the Queen, and, and Top of the Pop started putting on new wave and punk bands, and the world just seemed to change on a, on a dime, as I would come to call it, having moved to America. <laughs> and um, and and very soon into the start of that school year, I just read an article in one of the four British weekly music papers that we had at the time about fanzines and just thought, that sounds like fun. And it was as simple as starting a little school magazine. It was a terrible first issue. Uh, we were 13 years old. I think we were excused. As I got to grips with the school machine, it got a little bit better. And then the following summer, in the summer of 78, I realized I really enjoyed doing it and wanted to take it more seriously and wrote to some people to get interviews and got a couple of interviews. And uh, I had to be really, really tenacious about it. I look back and and can't quite believe how ballsy I was and how brave I was on on everything from printing to distribution to doorstepping people to get interviews. But I loved it. And most people opened their doors to me. And uh it sent me off on a path that's had many, many peaks, and 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 you know we're going to use trail running as a metaphor. Many peaks and valleys, <laughs> and you know they've, I've been through the pain cave a few times <laughs> in my in my career as well. Uh, I'm still standing, and um, you know I've I've now got a few books to my name, and I look back on it all, and it's been a, a life richly lived. It's amazing. I was reading it, you know, age 13, age 14, like you said, 77, 78, you're getting interviews with like Adam Ant and like actual real punk English punk musicians. How did that happen? Just just throwing throwing it out there, huh? You know, you 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 throw it out there. I still operate on the basis that um, if you don't ask, you don't get. And if you ask politely, the worst that will happen is you get told no. Right. Um, Adam Ant was completely sort of culturally unknown at the time, but um, Paul Weller of the Jam was not. Uh, the Jam were my favorite group, and he is the person who wrote back to me uh, that summer and said, uh, come by the studio. Uh, I've still got the letter. Actually, funny enough, we're putting together a book of the best of the uh, the, the fanzine, the best of jamming uh, that will come out next year. And somehow I've held on to not just one copy of every issue, but also some of the letters that were written my way. Oh, that's and, amazing. Uh, I still have that original letter where he says, you know, if you're free, I mean, it was the school summer holidays. <laughs> if you're free, come by RAK Studios. We're making the new LP and you can have an exclusive. Oh, my uh, God. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it sort of went, it sort of went from there. There was just a lot of... Um, Back back then, we were able to get to go to gigs and places like the Marquee in London would let kids in if we didn't hang at the bar too much and didn't drink. <laughs> um, some places we couldn't get into, but a lot of gigs were not particularly age conscious. They were being held in halls and they were being held in rooms above pubs. And um, it's bizarre to think of this. I'm a parent of two kids. One of them's 15 now. The other one's older and, and graduated. But at the age of 14 and 15, me and my school friends would sort of come home from school, get out of our school uniforms, get back on buses and meet in Piccadilly Circus and go to see bands at the marquee in the middle of the week and then talk about it the next day at school, having got home at like 11.30 at night. I mean, our parents let us loose. Um, I'm inclined to say I don't know what they were thinking, but we sort of... <laughs> We saw, I mean, there was, there were one or two times I came home. There was one time I, I came home, my mother was on the phone to the police. Um, oh, God. But that, that, oddly, that was an occasion not really of my making. I, I 
I hadn't meant to be out that late and I didn't want to be. And I was in some some sort of company. I was, I was trying to get home. So I think that that was the reason on that occasion. Most times it would be like, mom, I'm off to see a band. And she'd be like, behave. And I'd come home and, you know, I hadn't gotten into trouble. So I got permission to see the next band. Wow. Wow. So you must have seen all kinds of crazy stuff. Was it hard to stay away from kind of negative influences at that age? You know, I've talked about this with some of my friends. I had a band as well at the time. And um, of my two bandmates that I formed the band with at school in the same class. So I had a band and a fanzine going at school. Both of their brothers got into uh, some negative stuff. And we've often looked back and wondered what it was with us that we never went down that path. I think we maybe we were just so busy and so we the, the music you know i've seen a lot of stuff around music i've seen a lot of substances i've been around that um but i think we were just having such a good time that we weren't we weren't the ones hanging on street corners that could have gotten into bad stuff i think we were the ones who were like let's go to a gig let's go to a gig you know i was putting out the fanzine um i won't say there weren't temptations and i also won't say that none of us never took a few uppers <laughs> in our lives and and you know smoked the odd the odd joint as well because we did i'd be lying if i said that we didn't sure but i think that we were motivated to uh to really be like part of this incredible ride that we were on so uh, i mean I, I don't even know how to phrase the question just i'm getting a sense of what it was like but uh, you know, the, the punk scene in London at that time, we're talking the late 70s, is, I mean, that's, you know, so many seminal acts came out of that scene. And, and it sounds like you were there on the ground floor for the Clash, the Sex Pistols and everything else. Sort of, sort of, Jay. I was, um, I was of the second generation. I, w- I would say in a way, the way to put it is I was of the new wave generation. Okay. So what happened was that it was the older kids who uh, were into punk there were some older kids at my secondary school who kind of had the look which was more of a soul boy look than a than a mohawk punk look in about 70 76 they were the kind of people that might just have been able to go and get into soho nightclubs and and see the bands in their earliest days i didn't know anybody in my personal uh uh, network who ever saw the Sex Pistols. There were way more people in America saw the Sex Pistols. The Sex Pistols were banned from playing in the UK basically by the end of 1976. They only played two or three more gigs. And one of those was a Christmas Day show for children um, at a children's home in 1977. Oh, I mean, man. they couldn't get, they couldn't, I was, you know, you don't want to say they couldn't get arrested because that they could certainly get arrested. They couldn't play. <laughs> I did get to see the clash at the, uh, a very famous, um, anti-Nazi league rock against racism uh, concert um, in Hackney Park in 1978. That's a sort of seminal occasion. Um, But I was mainly there for more of the new wave thing. So I got to see, you know, gigs that I really remember that may or may not mean a lot to the average American and the average person listening to the show. But there were things like seeing the Rizillos and the Undertones at the Marquee, when the Undertones were barely any older than we were in Teenage Kicks, wow. um, was just breaking. And we just went backstage and sort of said to the Undertones, can we get an interview sometime? And um, I asked them how to play Teenage Kicks. And the guys like just showed me on the guitar, just a bunch of bar chords. And then they went on stage and played it. And there was like no <laughs> barrier back then. You would just walk at the Marquee. There was no security. You would just walk backstage and walk into it. was like CBGB's that, you know, I found out later was much the same. There was no, you know, if you wanted to walk into the dressing room, you walked into the dressing room. <laughs> so I saw, you know, there's a lot of things like some of these, some of, some of these acts are seminal. I, mean, I, I, I believe I saw the raincoats first ever gig and the raincoats were an all-female band that were a massive influence on nirvana um they were playing with screedy politi in a room above a pub um you know there were i've looked back and there were weird things like seeing you know human league open for psychedelic furs and all kinds of you know all kinds of shows that i saw that you don't didn't necessarily know that the human league would end up reinventing themselves and being a number one pop band but you you went to these gigs because you were you were interested and uh um, you know, I was very, very fortunate, but I was also getting out there. I don't really have any idea how I got into all of these shows. I think people started taking pity on me and let me in for free. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So you, as you said, you started the fanzine, which became kind of a, um, a, a monthly, like a professional publication. I mean, it, it grew well beyond the, a, a schoolboy pursuit. And then you moved into, you know, writing professionally and you've written several books, including, I think probably the, the most well-known is, is the biography of Keith Moon, right? Yeah, that would be the most well-known. Yes. How did you yeah. get that gig? Much the same way as doing the fanzine, really. There's um, there's a story that's at the end of the book that if you're spiritual, and I'm only partially spiritual, but they're, 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 I I um, I mean I'd like to say I'm spiritual. I guess if you if you're saying if the universe is talking to you, I think something went on. I was a massive Who fan. Like that was the band from before punk that stuck with me through punk. They were punks. I'm still a massive Who fan. They were my band. I still think Pete Townsend is the, uh, the greatest. Um, and uh, right, really, really quickly, there was an exhibition that, of Who fan memorabilia at the Institute of Contemporary Arts on Pall Mall in 1978, in the summer of 1978. And I decided to go there on opening day, figuring that the Who were just the sort of band that would show up to, to a fans event. And Pete Townsend and Keith Moon duly showed up. Um, I found myself standing next to Keith, oddly enough, while um, we were looking at a hologram of himself sat at a drum kit. <laughs> um, he had a kid next to him that I forgot about at the time, who was Zach Starkey, which is just a, also bizarre. Um, I pulled a copy of my fanzine out and asked Keith to autograph it. And uh, he, of course, didn't recognize it and said he'd love to read it. I offered to <laughs> let him keep that copy. When he found out it was my only one, he said, no, 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 dear boy, let me sign this. But tell you what, and he pulled out like, yeah, a little scrap of paper, and he wrote down his home address. And he says, Just come around and see me sometime, dear boy. Bring a copy with you, and we'll, we'll have a talk. Oh, my God. And, uh, um, and I did. I've subsequently realized that the day I went round to his apartment in Mayfair, he was in America um, promoting the album Who Are You with Pete. And uh, very soon after getting back, he died. Like I'm, So I that encounter was all of about four weeks before he died. It oh, hit me man. really, really, really hard. I felt like this was the first. I'd met and interviewed Paul Weller. I hadn't yet interviewed Pete Townsend. Um, Keith's death really, really hit me. I, I was one of these who looked up to him as a rebel. I've subsequently come to realize we, by vicariously living through his exploits, we contributed to his demise. And that's not an uncommon story. I'm very sensitive to when I see... Um, and if anybody from, you know, your Justin Bieber's to whoever, you know, going through public pain, not to not to be part of that process anymore. But be that as it may, years down the line, like literally in the early 90s, I just I'd written two books and I was just kept thinking, am I brave enough? Am I ready to take on Keith Moon? And I just kept looking around and thinking, well, nobody else is doing this. Right. And then when it came to trying to sell the idea, nobody really wanted to do it because the publishers were saying, well, who wants to read a book about a dead drummer? I mean, nobody be, you know, reads about drummers. Nobody cares about drummers. And um, the two publishers that signed on to the book were both publishers I'd worked with before. Um, it wasn't necessarily totally because of Keith Moon. They had some faith in me. And they also had faith when I took the 100,000-word commission and turned it into quarter of a million words. <laughs> and both publishers said, we'll print every word of it. Wow. And, and they both got their money back. So... You know, it's as often the case, some of the things that can be really successful are um, can be a hard sell initially. Now, I know that you've written, you know, you can listen to The Who and you can listen to The Stones and, and you're you're OK if you listen to both. But you kind of have to have one as your favorite. Right. And you're a Who guy. Now, I'm, a, I'm a Stones guy. What does that say about me? It says that I'll see you outside for a fight afterwards. <laughs> I'm just, <laughs> I, uh, I like to just like bring that up every now and then. My son, the same son I, I was saying earlier, the younger one, he's in the uh, Rock Academy up here in Woodstock, mm -hmm. which, I, which I also am a show director at, and he's currently in a Rolling Stones show. And I mean, I can't argue with something like Honky Tonk Women, which he's got as oh, one yeah. of his, his songs. He's got like six songs because they have a big cast and and they rotate the cast around but there's other you know he's like he's got a song called memory motel that he and i were listening to and going like will this ever end i um, love I that never, song you see there we go you see that so i think where i struggle a little bit is when the stones get into just that sort of jam oh i don't time. i don't mind that at all but there are there are moments because i play as well i um i had this group where we played our way through the 60s year by year 
And there were certain songs like playing You Can't Always Get What You Want sure. is just is phenomenal. And I also got to play with a group in the last year or two where we did a lot more Stone songs and I enjoyed it a lot more. But I do think you kind of choose one or the other. And um, The Who have spoken to my life and and be more to the point most of the time. And, you know, I I do think they stayed punks. I think when punk happened, there was a, an attitude that Mick Jagger and Keith at that point were very, very, very distant. Whereas right. Keith Moon was showing up at the Vortex Punk Club. Pete, Pete Townsend famously wrote, who are, who are you after encountering uh, two of the Sex Pistols in a nightclub? And basically they didn't recognize him and he just wanted them to take over anyway at that point. Right. So I always thought of the, the Who as more of a working class band, whether or not they were working class, that's how I looked at them. See, the the dichotomy is interesting because the one that most people would set up is the Stones versus the Beatles and not the Who. And and I think, at least looking at it from, uh, you know, the US and, and being a little younger, the Stones were the working class answer to the Beatles. Not that the Beatles weren't a working class band. I mean, they came up in, you know, as schoolboys together and everything else. None of them, you know, had anything handed to them that way. But I think the Stones were always set up as kind of like the rough and tumble alternative to the Beatles. Um, yeah, they, they sort of were. And I find this stuff endlessly fascinating because really the the Beatles were more of the working class band right. without without any question. Right, because Mick, Mick and Keith kind of grew up uh, fairly well off, right? I think um, they got grammar schools in their life somewhere. Yeah. And, uh, um, yeah, I mean, t- to be quite honest with you, yeah, if we're going to go down this path, there are a lot less truly working class bands than would make themselves out to be. I mean, Joe, <laughs> Joe, Joe, Joe Strummer, God bless him, who because he turned his back uh, to a large degree on his background. But I mean, he was born as a son of a diplomat. You know, he wasn't particularly struggling growing up. He turned his back on that. Right. Um, but uh, there aren't too many really, really true working class bands out there. And even the Beatles at times had to take some stick like, oh, you know, I think McCartney went to a grammar school, you know, and he would be like, yeah, I passed my 11 plus. You right. know, that was the way it went. I, I worked hard, and but I came from nothing. And, uh, um, and I think also the Northern English bands would have had more just because of the, it wasn't just a class divide. There was a geographical divide in Britain that still exists. And, and they would have come from a more working class background than, than the London bands anyway. From being from Liverpool, you mean? Yeah, although that's not to say that London doesn't have like some seriously poor areas and didn't back then and doesn't doesn't still, um, right. you know. So when did you come to the U.S.? I came, um, moved over in 87 to New York City. So you were in your mid to late 20s then? I was in my early 20s. Your early 20s, basically, yeah. Basically about 23. Okay. And you were still working as a journalist? I know you got into some um, uh, management as well, right? Yeah, um, I'm happy to skip over a lot of this stuff. But you know, when you do a fanzine, you, 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 I mean, I got pulled in a lot of directions. Um, I, I always, I only ever started the fanzine as something to do. Honestly, I really and truly thought my band was going to be a thing. And I pursued the band all the way up to a major label record deal, which was effectively the kiss of death. And when the band broke up in 84, 85, I think, I just didn't have the heart to form another band. Mm. I put, my entire youth into one band. Um, but I got pulled in different directions. You know, the business side of jamming meant that, you know, people would be like, oh, can you manage us? And I did some TV work that I really enjoyed, but I, I, I was probably too young to do very, very well in terms of being on camera. But um, there was a combination of being involved with an American band um, and the fact that jamming had sort of... Um, I mean, effectively, it, it was running too much before it could walk and it was cash flow. And it turned in, you mentioned, you know, it became monthly, it turned into a business and it could never quite sustain itself. And it ultimately ran its course. And a lot of things that I'd done in the UK as a kid sort of had run their course. And the very first time I stepped foot in New York City, and it was as part of a, uh, a, a junket that I'd come out to LA with the enemy um, for a show. Uh, by the alarm and it was yeah i mean this was back in the days when record companies seemed to be able to afford to do things like that fly journalists halfway across the world Uh, i wasn't going to say no but i got to stop off in new york city on the way back and much as i love the experience of being in la just because it was i mean just 180 degrees different from from london um new york i had always thought new york city was going to eat me alive i was not a tough kid by 
any means. I was I was doing this music stuff so that I kind of could stay away from the tough kids. I mean, it was like an escape. I wasn't looking to fight anyone. Um, I wasn't strong enough. And I, I, you know, I, in New York, this is the mid, mid late eighties when it was in a bad way. And I just instantly fell in love with the energy of New York city. And honestly, and truly had one of those kind of epiphanies where I felt on one day trip, I'm meant to be in New York city. And I now have to figure out how to live here. I was kind of fortunate. I'd started getting some TV work on the production side from a, uh, from a French show that actually grew into a British show as well called Rapido. And, um, I had some other freelance work and I went to all of these people over a course of time. I went to all of them and said, if I move to New York city, will you still hire me? And every one of them said, you know, you're freelance. I mean, but we'll try. We like <laughs> you. And if you hit us up with good ideas, we'll, we'll try and commission them. But I mean, you know, no guarantees. And I, I took the plunge and also picked up the phone when I kind of got to New York and just called the editors at spin and different magazines. And, uh, I, I had one book under my name at that point. I somehow bluffed my way into the New York City media as well as doing stories for back in the UK. Um, I guess I had the energy and New York City gave me the energy. It gave me a second lease of life. And and I would actually say I had like the most fun years of my life in New York City because a lot of that London time was a really hard work putting that fanzine out. I mean, and it was an endless grind. I had a lot of fun, but but I look back on a, you know, quite a grind and New York city just seemed to be throwing stuff in my lap. And it was, it was a blast. It was about five years. It was just a true blast. Was it hard making a living as a freelancer or was it just opportunity after opportunity just because of the way the scene was, was running? I kind of, um, you know, I arrived in New York city pretty damn broke to be honest. Um, you know, I told you I've had peaks and valleys in my life yeah. and, um, New York was this like, yeah, I guess it was make or break. I mean, I didn't really think of it that way. I just knew that I stood a chance in New York City. And I, I, God knows how I first got my first apartment. I can remember it was on the corner of East Broadway and Grand Street and gunfire would be going off at nights, you know, from the projects around there. Um, I hustled my way both into the New York media and was starting to get work from the UK. And then it started picking up and and the the TV show was giving me a fair bit of work. And all of a sudden I had money in the bank and I ended up doing a um, club night with, uh, with my next roommate in New York city and it took off. And um, that was, that was a lot of fun. It was crazy, but it was a lot of fun. And there was, um, there was, there was good money around having, having said that, you know, you were talking about the negative influences in London. Nobody, like there were little speed pills. I mean, we may as well talk about this. And I did hear your interview with Jimmy Buff and it was fascinating to hear his life story. Cause I, I never actually knew all the background. Yeah. You know, in London, there were speed pills around and, um, there was kind of pretty bad hash and everybody would smoke that with tobacco and it was always awful. Um, the, I, I didn't really see much else ever hmm. in London. I do, I do know that there were people I knew who got into heroin, um, there was one person who once offered me some and I never forgave him for it. And I was smart enough to say no, because he was older than me and he should have known better. But I right. think that's not how heroin addicts work because they kind of <laughs> want to get you on board. Right. But New York city was a different animal. And, um, there, there was much more potential to go down a path there. And I could see that what we were doing with the nightclub, which was at the limelight, which was pretty infamous at the time. Yeah. There was a lot of bad stuff going on and, um, over on my, actually literally on my honeymoon, I realized I had to, I I needed to get out of it and get back to writing because I felt like I've had a blast in New York city. This has been so much fun. I've managed to survive all of this stuff that's going on. I just kind of like plow through the middle of it. Um, but there's some, there's some bad stuff going around and at heart, I've got more to contribute than being, I love DJing, but I've got more to contribute than, 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 you know, playing records to people who are kind of out of their heads and being around some negative, uh, negative stuff going on. So that's when I really got out of it. And that was the point at which I said, I think I'm going to try and write that Keith Moon book now. Okay. Okay. So you had the insight to get out when you recognize things, you know, were potentially bad. That's interesting. When did you move up, uh, upstate to the Valley? Uh, 2005. Yeah. So right around the same time we came as well. Um, yeah, we started bumping yeah. into each other. How, um, I, 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 
could do this stuff all day, but uh, I don't have unlimited time with you. And um, I do want to talk about running and stuff as well. Tell me a little bit about how you got into running. Was that a part of your life at all while you were, um, uh, you know, in London or in New York? Or did did that start when you came up here? And and what was your athletic background before that, if there was any? There was no athletic background in my childhood. Um, I was a mad and still am a completely obsessed follower of Crystal Palace Football Club. Crystal Palace, um, you and Rebecca, you and Rebecca Lowe. Yeah, me and Rebecca Lowe. Yeah, we're we're besties. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's really nice that Rebecca Lowe is a Palace fan. Actually, it's just like one this little thing we have for those who don't know. Of course, she's well. For those who don't know, she's the host on the NBC Sports for for the Premier League. Um, here's a really interesting thing. I I I go over this a lot because I sometimes joke, but I'm. I'm only half joking that I finally found something I'm good at in life, which is running. (laughs) Um, And it took me a large chunk of my life to realize that. So I've spent a reasonable amount of time in recent years looking back and wondering sort of, you know, was it always in me and why didn't I do it earlier? And the answers that I've come up with are that it was in me. Because I remember doing things like, you know, we had a caravan. Um, My parents divorced when I was very young and my mom was a teacher and, and, getting a little caravan mobile home on a field in Devon was a way to enjoy those school holidays when you didn't have the money to go abroad Mm. um, and your kids were off school at the same time. You could just shoot. I used to just like run around the field. I mean, I remember like, okay, I'm just going to run around the field for an hour. (laughs) Um, I would always be walking off to places. And funnily enough, when I was at school and doing my fanzine, because I was always late for everything, I could run for buses to catch those old Routemaster buses where you could jump on the back. I could out sprint anybody, but I never realized I was a runner. It was just like, oh, God, there's the bus again. And I would just go like running down the high street, knocking people over to get on the bus so that I could get to school and, and not be marked like late yet again. You know? um, and I also have memories of doing that once or twice we did cross country at school, being a little too fast and drawing the attention of the uh, the gym teacher, which was the last thing I wanted to do. Because <laughs> the previous time I'd drawn his attention was when they forced me to play rugby and somebody threw the ball at me and I caught it and saw everybody running at me. So I like, kicked it upfield and apparently that was the right thing to do. And I got put in the rugby team that weekend. Which- <laughs> was like the last thing I wanted. So so I was doing everything to avoid being noticed. And then when I came to New York City, the very, very, very first thing I did, other than get a roof over my head, was ask if there, was an, uh, if there were Brits playing football. And there were. And they happened to be like right next door to this apartment I had on the East River. And um, I went off and we'd play on Sundays and occasionally play midweek. But we'd play on Sundays and I would wake up on Monday and then we'd go drinking um, and I would wake up on Mondays with me and my legs like iron girders mm. and when I got a steady girlfriend who became my wife and mother of the, of, of the two of our two kids she had been a runner all the way through school and, and interestingly sort of there is a moral here because it's almost like she handed me the bat and she'd sort of run herself into the ground um, she overran as a young person, mm. but she said to me, you know, if you'd only go out jogging just once or twice during the week, you wouldn't feel such a wreck on those Monday mornings. You'd be better off playing football. Right. And at first I was like, you know, joggings for, I mean, I don't know what kind of prejudices I, I had, but I sort of did, but I took her advice anyway. And she was right. <laughs> and one thing that another thing that was a calling card that was a warning sign is I was never very, very good at football. I was what I was good at was running. Mm-hmm. So if I played midfield, you could always find me up the field and back down the field. Yeah, I wouldn't make the game. I wouldn't be scoring goals, but people would like me because I could run. That was that was me playing football or soccer as well. It was. Yeah, I'd run up and down the field all day. It's just when I got the ball, I didn't know what I was doing with it. Yeah. I sort of look back and, you know, I mean, you, you can't change your, your, your background. Uh, Britain was, was what it was in the 70s, which was pretty messed up, to be quite honest. Um, I didn't have a mentor. We didn't have school sports the way we do in America. Right. You know I mean, none, none of that culture. Um, like I say, I mean, I didn't want to be playing rugby at weekends. I wanted to be going to see Palace play. I was happy being on the terraces watching sure. Palace. So nobody was nobody was you know, giving that to me, but, um, we didn't have college sports the way you have college sports in America. Right. I mean, you, you know, I, I know it starts sounding like a Monty Python sketch, but there's a reason for that famous Yorkshireman sketch, you know, or oh, when we were young, you were lucky to get, you know, you were <laughs> lucky to get 
buried in the ground at night. (laughs) There was an element of that. Um, I picked up on the running in my 20s, realized that actually I quite enjoyed it. And if there was a real moment, it was probably entering the marathon in 2002 in New York City, Mm -hmm. running it and being one of those people who said, oh, I'd like to come back and do this again, working my way up to that. And then it wasn't bucket list for me. It wasn't like done that it was horrible or done that it was great never again right i was like i like this and then specifically when we moved upstate it was part of one of many good reasons for doing it was i couldn't wait to start running the mountains and get into a better better running groups than existed in new york city right had you had any experience running trails before that time um not not much not much i did just a little bit of it when we came up at weekends Mm -hmm. um I, w- I will say this, there was there was a moment I was really fascinated. I guess I'd heard about the Escarpment Trail Run. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it would have been in the early 2000s, maybe 2002 or three, that I went to the finish line and I didn't get there in time for Ben Nephew. You obviously have to be pretty fast to get there in time for Ben <laughs> Nephew. Yep. But I got there in time for the second or third place runner who came through, it was his first time doing the course, and as he came through, you know, I don't think he was covered in blood, but he was certainly probably covered in mud and sweat. Yeah. And like, no sooner did he hit the finish line than he said, that was like, he was like, that's the best day of my life. And I thought, I want to experience that. And, you know, I really want to do this race. It sounds so grueling. I, I want to do that. And within about three years, I was doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And how many times have you run it now? Because that, that's the kind of race where people just go back over and over. I run it 11 times. Yeah, there you go. And <laughs> I've, um, I've only missed it um, because of genuine illness, pandemics, um, or being out of the country. And I also um, am petitioning Dick for qualification for a 12th time because I ran it unsupported this summer. Oh, okay. Canceled. Yeah. There you go. So he'll, he'll add that to your total then. Yeah, I'm sure he will. Yeah. <laughs> you know he won't. You know, <laughs> no you know I've got <laughs> Um. What are some of the other uh, events that you've... I know I know you ran Cat's Tail this past weekend. Have you done that before? Is this your first time at Cat's Tail? Yeah, no, this was my fourth year in a row doing Cat's Tail. Yeah, that's a great um, course too. Uh, you know, and I think a lot of your listeners, um, they understand the courses we're talking about. It's quite... I think a lot of them do. I mean, for those that don't, we're, you know, these are... Escarpment certainly a classic route uh, on the Escarpment Trail. Uh, these are both in the... Uh, mid Catskill region. The Escarpment Trail run is a 30k segment of basically a 24, 25 mile trail that goes over, I think, three or four different peaks. Um, and is it's just like most everything else in the in the Catskills and and the Catstail uh, Trail Marathon, which has now been around for six or seven years, uh, is no exception. These are incredibly demanding, incredibly technical routes that there's no flat ground. It's all boulders and roots and rocks and hand over foot climbing and everything else. Yeah, um, the escarpment. The escarpment is especially brutal, and I think in part because it's just short enough that you you run it hard. You can run it hard, exactly. You, you sort of need to run it hard. And um, the cat's tail, I find incredibly rewarding as a run. It's uh, it's amazing. It's like every time your body says, "I've just had enough of this," it gives you a different direction to go. Yeah. Um, and for that reason, I really love it. And I had this past weekend, it's, this hasn't happened too often. I had one of those perfect days. It's not in terms of a time. It was my second best of my four times. But I normally run out of steam on that last section coming down from Wittenberg, mm-hmm. which goes on forever. And this time I paced myself throughout. I was actually deliberately trying to be slower to the halfway mark. And I succeeded in slowing myself down by 10 minutes. And I made it all up in that second half. Wow. So I enjoyed that. I don't have I don't have a whole ton of ultra running races behind me. I've done Manitou's Revenge once, Mm -hmm. um, and I've done the Finger Lakes fifty, and I you know the Cat's Tail four times and an Escarpment uh, eleven. I would love to do more of the longer races. I have found the uh, you know I, I fully understand that if you want to do something, you find time for it. I fully get that. But just being a parent, and I've been a parent of kids that are years apart, and being self-employed, having other things I have to do, I've just often looked at the training time necessary to, to do ultras. Right. And asking around, it has seemed to me a lot of ultra runners either don't have kids or have been empty nesters or you know pre pre kids. Right. Um. It's it's very hard to you know you can get away with a certain amount of saying like, can I go out for a long run on Saturday morning? I promise I'll be 
a happier person for it. It's a lot harder to say, can I disappear for an entire day every right. weekend? Right, you know, exactly. Exactly. Train for a hundred miler that might cost me thousands in flights and hotels and so on. So Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And then and right. And then it's a it's a, a negotiation between either I'm I'm waking up at three o'clock in the morning to get this run in, you know, more weeks than not, or right, or I'm not, you know, I'm I'm surrendering the uh the yeah. any chance of of spending a day with the family and that doesn't always go over well i'm trying to i'm actually sort of looking on it <clears throat> i'm looking on it now that it seems like every year i managed to add one more road marathon and one more trail marathon mm -hmm. um i think that's a pretty good thing to be able to do every year I'd, and something that's been really interesting about this god-awful pandemic year is i think i know that there's that the whole thing with the fastest known times but i've gone a little bit the other way of i've been much less obsessed with times because there's been less races right. and I've, I think I've been enjoying myself more. Yeah. And it's been interesting freed of the racing schedule right up until these last few weeks. Yeah. And um, it's, it's, it's interesting that you say that because, um, you know, following a bunch of elite runners online and stuff like that, it's, it became, you know, pretty apparent after a month or two that once everyone kind of realized that, you know, the races that they were gearing up for weren't going to happen and you, you kind of were able to let go of the frustration and everything else. So many people kind of reported that same thing of of feeling kind of a renewed enthusiasm and just, uh, I don't know if it was relief necessarily, but just like rediscovering the joy of, you know, well, I don't have, you know, this race on the calendar and now I can just go out and do it because I like doing it. And it was it was really it was eye opening for a lot of people, I think, to, to realize that you don't need necessarily that carrot out there if you're just going out and enjoying the process on a daily basis. I enjoyed all of my training runs for, for Cat's Tail. I trained for Escarpment, kind of knowing it probably would get canceled, but I, I thought if it happened, I wanted to be able to be there for mm -hmm. it. Um, I enjoyed all of that process. And like I say, last Saturday, it was not about time. It was about trying to run you know, the perfect race in the sense of putting in a good time, but feeling good yeah. from start to finish. And, uh, you know, I don't know how many of, of the listeners would, would agree with this. That doesn't happen too often. I no. mean, you know, those the escarpment, I felt good at the finish maybe two or three. Well, actually, I always feel good at the finish because I can, I can always sprint that last 100 yards and it's done. <laughs> but it's beaten me up more times than it hasn't. The yep. road marathons have beaten me up more times than they haven't. Oh, and for sure. It's much easier for me to count the, the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the perfect pain-free but fast races than the rest of them because sure. the rest of them are the majority we we kind of keep coming back because we kind of keep just wanting to go i'll beat you someday <laughs> right and, right and someday we do so yeah it's been an interesting you know there are very few positives to take out of 2020 this is just like a small reminder that we get a little too obsessive some you know about our times and i'm sure i'll get obsessive about them again right Tell me, tell us about your um, year in, was it 2014 when you guys you, as a family traveled around the world and you were basically running in countries and places that most of us will never get to see? Tell us, tell yeah. us a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, it was 2016. Um, <clears throat> so it was four years ago now, four years ago now, we were in October, I would have been in a camper van in New Zealand and I would be happy to still be in that camper van in yeah. New Zealand, uh, quite honestly. Um, I made a promise to um, my wife and, uh, you know, by extension to my younger son that I wouldn't enter any races in, uh, for the first half of the year. And there, there were races that were going on. In fact, a couple of times my wife said, are you sure you don't want to, because we were doing a lot of travel on the fly. So we'd be in India and there would be a half marathon taking place in the foothills of the Himalaya. And I'd say, no, I promise not to. And I was just doing what we're actually talking about in 2020. I would just go out and run. Mm -hmm. There is something just so amazing about putting on your shoes or leaving them off if you choose to and running through a local community because two or three things happened. First thing is, um, first thing is I want to assure people you're generally safe. Um, a lot of people are always just perpetually scared. And the thing that stops most people traveling is fear. Um, the world is actually a safe place. Um, it really, really is. And people are just delighted to see you run through their community. I've had like almost no negative experiences. They kind of think you're mad, but every now, but they'll, they'll talk to you. And I've had experiences like I'm, I'm way up in, um, yeah, it's one of my favorite places, a village called Yuxum at the end of the road in India, where from there, it's actually where, where 
the three lamas met to create a Buddhist kingdom. There's a, a um, 16th century con uh, stone throne that's outdoors where apparently these, these Buddhas, you know, met from different corners of the map and created the kingdom. Um, from there, you hike into the Himalaya. I went on a local run. We also we did a hike into the Himalaya. And on my way back from the run, the school kids were coming out. And I got talking to a teenager who spoke good English. And he told me he'd done the marathon up and down the Himalayas there three times. Oh, my God. You know? And that's you like you, you have these conversations because you're in running clothes. Right. And I've run, you know, I ran on the sand of the Sahara and I ran in the Great Rift Valley in um, in Tanzania. Um, I... I'm trying to think. Oh, one of my favorite experiences, actually one of my very best, there's a place called um, Semporna in Borneo, which was the only place that we visited that was on a do not visit warning. It was to do with kidnappings, mm. which really were taking place at sea. It's one of the top diving places in the world, scuba diving. Mm. And we had just got our certificates because um, we got them really cheap in Thailand on an island. And um, long story short, we went to we went to this place and it was okay, but it was pretty seedy. It was a port city, and I was like, I just went running through it, and I'm running around some pretty poor streets, and I'm always figuring I can outrun danger. You know, that's one healthy thing. But instead, <laughs> the opposite happens. These little kids start running with me, you know, and they you often hear this. They start running with you, and they can all most people can speak a bit of English, so they they ask me they're like, uh, you know, who are you? Where are you where are you from? And I say America, and they go, yeah, you speak English. I said, yeah, England. You like football. And I'm like, I'm English. Of course I like football. And then you get this thing that you that I had all the way through 2016, which was people would go like, Messi or Ronaldo? This was like the big thing around the world. Like, are you a Messi person or are you a Ronaldo person? Okay, so are you a Messi or Ronaldo? Obviously Messi. Okay, and most people, most people, I would say going around the world in 2016, the most famous person in the world was Lionel Messi. Really? Yeah. Re yeah, really, really and truly. I know that might surprise people. I would say the most famous musician was Bob Marley. Um, really? That yeah. would surprise me for sure. Yeah. From Borneo to most most places, I would say Bob Marley is the most famous musician in, in the world. Wow. Yeah. Living or dead. Yeah, I know. I know. But these were great experiences. There was another time running. It was I was actually running in Tanzania and I felt a little you know, nerve. I had no real reason, but a little nervous about it. And I felt these footsteps behind me. I'm like, okay, so what's going on? I look around and this guy's like, I'm just going to run with you, man. <laughs> and it was like this older guy. And he ran with me a little bit. And I, and I'll be really quick, but my, maybe my, the one decent picture I took the whole time was when I was running to this high point in southern India, but you can park at the bottom of the hill. And I took a bus there, and it's only two miles up the hill. Most Indians actually drive up the hill. But I went running up, and I passed this group of young kids, and I heard their footsteps pick up behind me. And I turned around and they were just like, we just want to run with you. And they literally said, like, tell us how to run. Because un unfortunately, like India's modernizing so quickly and the middle classes are growing so quickly that they're, they're able to get taxis everywhere. And and they literally I, I, I whipped out my camera because they're always taking photos of you without permission. Mm -hmm. So I whipped out my iPhone and took a picture of them and they all kind of raised their hands and they're colorful girls in saris and boys in denims and sandals and barefoot. And it's just, oh man, those experiences don't happen if you're not actually out running in, in the midst of people. Yeah. Yeah. What's uh what's one place you wish you would go back to? Well, the most, um, the, the most beautiful place on the planet is New Zealand. That's what everybody um, says. It, it truly, truly is. It's a, it's a paradise, but it's also a paradise because it's easy. Um, and there were many, many, many fascinating places that I wouldn't mind going back to if I had a job, you know, for a year or at a time. I loved all of India. This, I loved the, I, I was able to get by with the chaos. I thought Calcutta was the most fascinating place I've ever been. I can't wait to go back to Calcutta. It, it, it just, it's just an astonishing place. Um, I really, really enjoyed it all. The only place I have been back to is Tanzania. I went back there last year and climbed Mount Kilimanjaro mm. and, and la launched my own podcast series off the back of that. Um, I would go back to a lot of those places. Nepal was probably the most contradictory, the most beautiful and the most frustrating. But every single place has has its merits every single place has its merits that's um, amazing yeah that's awesome. i really recommend that people i know we can't travel right now but i really recommend that people try and do that i think so many of the world's problems would be solved particularly our, our american problems if we just had some inbuilt 
like exchange trip system in mm -hmm. the United States and, and people got to go out of their communities and go somewhere else in the world, there'd be a lot less. I mean, racism would be pretty much canceled out, I promise. I think that's a, yeah, it's an excellent point. I mean, we've seen it more and more, you know, especially in the last couple of years, obviously worsening with the pandemic, but just the provincialism and everyone's in their own little bubble and, and right. You don't, you don't get to, to realize the experiences that other people are having and, and, you know, the stresses that other people go through and, and then the degree to which we're all, you know, alike in some way and, and that we all have the same kind of struggles. Yeah. And I'm telling you those stories from traveling around the world and I don't have a negative story to tell you. Yeah. I mean, the only thing that happened, I got pickpocketed on the subway train in Kuala Lumpur, but that, I mean, I was warned. There were signs everywhere. It's a big city. It could have been London or New York and this sure. stuff's happened to me in London sure. and New York. Nothing in rural areas, nothing in that place in Porna, you know, people are, people are essentially good around the world and right. they do like seeing you run. They think it's hilarious in some places, but they love it. Before we go, I, I want to talk a little bit. I want to get back to music just a little, because I think music and, and, you know, rock music in particular is in a, a kind of a tenuous place at this point. I mean, we talked very briefly about how culture is so fragmented now and, and, you know, the music industry has changed so much. Where do you see, you know, having having kind of lived through some huge upheaval in, in the music industry and, and rock music in particular, where do you see the future? Is there a future for rock music in the next, you know, 10, 15, 20 years? And, and where do you see that coming from? Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, God, two or three answers. Yes, I see a place for rock music, but I don't think that rock stars exist in the way that they did. Right. I don't think necessarily that they should. I think there was a period in time where bands like the who and the stones lived these larger than life lifestyles and we're more it, there's a place and a time for it um there are groups that i love there were still the you know, noisy bands that i love there's a band called idols out of the uk i-d-l-e-s who've just released their third album called ultra mono they're they're one of the best live bands i've ever ever seen i saw them in albany in a bowling in a nightclub inside a bowling alley inside the crossgates mall and it was one of the Wow. best gigs i've ever ever seen oh my just God. a few years ago um there, so there were certainly bands making phenomenal music i'm very much about mixing up music i've you know i love the lcd sound system when they were going i sure. like bands that are electronic and and guitar based i yeah. love the band yeah. underworld i still love the band james um out of manchester i think is still making very relevant I remember james music. sure yeah, and they're still around. They made a great album called Living. In fact, I went to see them the night in, in um, Auckland the night that Trump was uh, won the election. Um, they went on stage about an hour after the election was called for Trump. So that was a very weird place to be. Wow. That, that, that time and, and, and place. Um, I just don't know that it's necessary for us to place our faith in, in rock stars. And I'm not sure that people like Pete Townsend would ask you to do it anyway. Right. Um, I don't know where we, you know, I think we get our heroes in a lot of different places. I think people like actors and sports stars are much more willing to be role models now than they, they used to be. And we used to look to our rock stars to like give us the message. I don't know if, you know, and, but a lot of them do, a lot of pop stars do, you know, people like Taylor Swift don't mind stepping up to the mic. They right. don't mind alienating an audience and taking that risk. So I think there's a massive place for it. Um, but I think that that, I, I just think that the days when we, we just thought of rock stars as gods are gone. And I think that's fine. I think that it had its time and place. And maybe I was lucky to look up to some of this. But I tell you what, a lot of the pictures I have of Keith Moon are seriously politically incorrect. <laughs> you know, I mean, they are. You know, we lived through those times. It all seemed like good fun. You look back on it now and you're like, oh, my God. Right. Couldn't get, couldn't get away with that right now. Right. Right. For sure. And yeah, all, all the... Uh... All, all the drug-addled and, and booze-addled rock stars of our youth are runners now, so. There's some of that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tony, before we let you go, we have to play Desert Island Picks. I'm sure you've, uh, you're familiar with the concept. I'm going to send you to Desert Island for a year, and uh, you're going to bring one book, one album, one food, and one beer. You know, I always have problems with, I, I, I feel bad when I ask either, you know, people like yourself or, or, or Buff who are, are rock experts. And I feel bad whenever I ask uh, authors this because, A, I don't, they're not going to want to bring their own books. But, B, I know they've read too many books to have to pick one. So I apologize in advance. But uh, go ahead. What are you going to bring for a desert island for a year? Okay. Um, so the book, uh, 
I'm going to play it very, very safe. My two favorite books, the, the ones that I return to are nonfiction narrative books where the author interjects themselves um, and their personality comes across. And one of them is Bill Bryson's um, A Short History of Nearly Everything. Mm -hmm. I, I was reading that on our world travels and have read it again two or three times. But given that this is a running show, um, I don't care if this is too populous uh, an opinion. I think Born to Run is one of the greatest books ever written. It's one of the few books I've read two or three times. I love Born to Run. Um, it, it taught me so much about humankind, about sports. I, I didn't know so much about, I didn't know about the Taramara. I didn't know much about Scott Jurek. Um, I would actually bring that book, particularly because we're talking running. I think it would help keep me inspired, but it would be a toss up between those two books. That's, that's excellent. Both great books. Uh, one album, this might be the toughest question you'll have to answer. Yeah, well, considering that I want to, um, you know, just in case I get run over by a bus on the way home, I want uh, to have uh, listening to you, see me, feel me, not really that part, but listening to you, finale of Tommy playing okay. at my funeral. I, lo and I, so, I love that. So I, I, I would bring Tommy. Good. Um, and I, I also think that I think a lot about The Who because I made a bunch of great records that are varied, but Tommy... I think is this masterpiece that doesn't seem to age. And there was so much to it from instrumentals to these short, funny songs to that incredible finale. It, I, I played it recently to somebody uh, start to finish and I was just immersed in it. I think it's one record that I wouldn't tire of. I think I had six months in high school where I think that was the only tape I listened to. I, and I probably wore out the cassette. It was unbelievable. Oh, good. Um, one food. So I'm vegan. Um, that's okay. And well, well, you can still, so probably I'd be able to live on the plants that are there. I'm going to be, I'm going to be so boring because the only thing that I really ever pack in a suitcase to, is to get me through until I can find like a, a, a new country or a new destination. Good food is cliff bars. And it sounds so <laughs> horrendously boring, but on a desert Island, I think I'd have a hard time cooking up my like mushroom stroganoff, but I could always just like open a cliff bar and know that I'm getting what I need. I, it's like a terrible answer, but I'm, no, I'm going to go that's with fine. that. It's a good, good running answer. Also, do you have a flavor? The, the the one that I can keep eating is the peanut butter bar. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, and one beer. Uh, no question on that. It would be the Gypsy Hill Hepcat. Um, Gypsy Hill is uh, happens to be the perfect combination. One of the very best breweries out of all of England, and and you can ask pretty much anybody in England that, and they just happen to be very local to my part of South London and Crystal Palace. Um, they are true pioneers. The Hepcat is a 4.6% session IPA. Um, it just does everything right. And uh, I miss that beer right now. I have a beer map by the side of my bed, and it's the nearest I can get to the beer in 2020. So uh, one of our former guests, uh, Christian Morgan, who is uh, an elite ultra runner from London, uh, is sponsored by Gypsy Hill. He lives around the corner from the brewery. And I think there the Hepcat, I think when, when we did Desert Island Picks with him, I think that was his answer as well. There you go. So I, oh, that's fantastic to know. They're, uh, I think they're Palace fans. I grew up around the corner from them. I've been to the brewery and uh, they're good people and the, the beers are amazing. Well, worst of luck to Crystal Palace this season. Uh, <laughs> before, before you go, do you want to plug your podcast or anything else? Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, I'd please. love to before we get into a football argument to match the Stones <laughs> and Who one. Yeah, so so I have a podcast called One Step Beyond. You may possibly need to just enter my name if you're searching for it because there, there have been others. Um, and uh, it's got like two taglines. It's about positively engaging with the world outside our door. And it's about take a step outside your comfort zone and enrich your life. And it's trying to find that sweet spot where you just take a risk in your life. But it's about everyday people. The, 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 the key is really about, about everyday people and, and how we can, I guess, you know, wake up to, to having some adventuring and living our life to the full. And to some extent, that will involve running. And running has been a fallback for me. Um, and I could probably make it a running podcast, but I've featured everything from people who've just discovered you know a career somebody who discovered a career as a wildlife photographer somebody who left kingston here in the hudson valley to open an art colony in Bog outside bogota colombia um through to a friend from england who totally amateur runner he's at the age of 66 decided to go and run the spartathlon course unsupported just because he wow. was interested in greek mythology you know so i like the idea of it's like you know the everyday people and i try and put in a lot of field recordings which makes for a 
a lot of hard work and maybe too much hard work, but um, but that's what I do. The next episode, I'm featuring a book called Still Running, which is subtitled The Art of Meditation in Motion. So it's applying Zen, Buddhist, Zazen meditation into the into running, really trying to like find your harmony in your running. That's awesome. That sounds great. Yeah. We'll link to that. Tony, thanks so much for coming on. This was really good. And uh, I hope I get to see you out on the trail soon. I hope we do so likewise. Thanks so much for having me on. It's, like, it's a blast to talk about running. It yeah. really is. Thank this, you. This was great. I loved it. Thanks to everyone for listening. And until next time in the pain cave, keep putting one foot in front of the other. Broken down and beaten up. The years have been long and tough, but I'm not dead. Happy now just to spend some time with friends and have a roof above my head. I'm not jaded, just been faded like a good old pair of jeans. Rusted like a proud old car that's drove a little too far and seen too much rain. But long ago, as a child, I look about the last guy in the Still